Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here today with Yardena Azben, my friend and Chavuta. Our daf of the day, Masachat Shabbat, Pechet, 88. Now, those of, us who, those of you who joined us on our pre-Shavuot Zoom learning um, have already encountered this daf with us, but we want to, you know, delve into certain other aspects of it today as we are now, you know, hitting it on Daf Yomi. Um, I want to focus on a piece of Gemara that is so famous and I feel like so often thrown around without really, you know, paying much attention, or maybe there's a lot of attention to it. I don't know. You'll join me, you'll understand what I'm talking about. We are still in the Gemaras that are talking about Matan Torah and, um, and very specifically here, the experience at Sinai. That is a verse from Shmot Yotet, right, from the chapter 19 in the book of Exodus, which is very much specifically talking about the giving of the Torah at Sinai. They encamped at the foot of the mountain. So the very statement, the very famous statement of Chazal here is that as much as, you know, Moshe brought the people to the to the foot of the mountain, and they stood at that lower part of the mountain. This says they that God. Let's see if I can translate this well. The tricky part is translating it. God forced God put held overturned force. There's so many different ways of translating this. The mountain over their heads, as it were, like a like a barrel, like a. Again, what's a gigit? Is it a tub? There's there's many different ways you can translate this, but the bottom line is that the implication is that they were there on the mountain and God essentially said, you will keep the Torah now or else, right? Here is this mountain over your heads and too bad for you, you have to keep the Torah. And the idea there is then that, you know, B'nai Israel got forced into it. Now, this of course lies in the face of other midrashim that we have seen elsewhere and that we will continue to see elsewhere and that you know, you know, about how God took the Torah to all the different nations. I think this is in Bamidbar Rabbah. God took the Torah to all the different nations and they said, what's in it? And and he, God told them, you can't steal, you can't murder, you can't this, you can't that. And each nation in turn turned it down. And then he brought it to Bnei Israel and they said, okay, we'll do it. Right? And by the way, what's in it? And meaning that that kind of approach is directly contradictory to this Gemara here. This Gemara says, you know, that God held this mountain over them and fundamentally removed choice, right? Because, you know, it's the modern equivalent is, you know, whatever, you know, someone says, I'm going to, uh, a bullet to your head, right? The idea that you have to do what you have to do because otherwise something so much worse is going to happen to you, whether it's life and death, or harm to your family or something like that, right? That it's a threat. And the threat is overwhelming and you can't stand up against it. So the problem, of course, is that if we're keeping the Torah because we have been threatened otherwise, and that's the motivation, then what kind of Torah is that that we're keeping? And that, of course, is the whole big question of, you know, what does it mean to accept the Torah? What does it mean? When I was quite young, I remember... Uh, that I heard at the Shabbaton. I can tell you when, I can tell you where, it doesn't matter for this purpose, but the idea that by itself is already a little bit of a contradiction in terms, meaning you can't do something that you haven't heard what it is that you're going to do. 
So you have to hear what it is that you're going to do. And then you can do it. And then, Venishma, and then we will come to an understanding. So there, one way of understanding Harkibi is that it's this kind of like simplistic, okay, we're going to just go ahead with it. And then over time, we'll come to a greater understanding. Again, that's, a, that's already a drash. That's not the plain sense of the text. It still sounds like there's coercion here. And the question, of course, is what does it mean that God is forcing B'nai Israel to keep his time? It, it, it doesn't work well. Right. So I, you know, when we did this, and I, you know, apologies to those who joined us on our Zoom class, you know, my reading of this always is, and we'll see that reflected in the second half of this piece of Gemara is, I think the coercion piece comes from that the actual giving of Matan Torah itself, which you can read about in Shemot Perak Yotet, was this overwhelming experience of really just witnessing God's um, existence, you know, completely in front of you. And we were to see that, you know, if God is not hidden to us, um, then, you know, or God's presence is just made completely uh, known to us, I'm not sure you end up with choice. (laughs) And I think that's somewhat of what the Gemara, to me, I think that's what the Gemara is really struggling with. You know, when you read those Pesukim well, I don't know that Matan Torah actually was like a, a, a pleasant experience. I think it may have been awesome. I think it was overwhelming. I think there was some fright involved with it, but it wasn't, I think, Anne, you called it, it wasn't a hug. <laughs> I think that's exactly what you <laughs> called it. And so I think that's the piece of what Chazal is being sensitive to here is that's the part of the coercion is, and I think that's actually a theme with uh, Shmot itself, you know, that after uh, the miracle that takes place with the splitting of the sea and B'nai Israel are finally rescued from Paru and his army, what's the first thing that they do? They complain that they don't have water. And I've always been stuck by that. It's like they were saved by water and then they complain that they don't have water. And I think this is telling us something about human nature, that an encounter with God in that way, Moshe did do panim el panim. And the truth is, and we'll actually see this, uh, well, we saw this on yesterday's staff. He didn't live normally like a human afterwards, after that encounter, right? When he knew that he could speak to God at any time, he separated from his wife forever. Um, I'm not sure that this is actually what's supposed to be part of human experience. And that's what I think Chazal is being very sensitive to here. So the thing that I, 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 I agree with everything that you're saying. The challenge for me is, I think also, if we take several Prakim back in Shmot, right? And we go back to Paro where Paro begins as a bad guy. And that's, you know, incontrovertible. He's a bad guy. He's killing the babies. There's no question, right? But then somewhere along the way, right, where the psukim say, that God hardened Paro's heart, that God removed the capacity to say, okay, you can leave now from Paro, you know, whether that's because Paro kind of got entrenched in his own in his own approach or God, you know, um, did this as a matter of punishment, right? The the idea that you don't get to choose or that you don't even get your own semblance of choice is is certainly some kind of punishment, right? Or it feels really bad if that would happen to you. Uh, it seems like Paro couldn't choose to let the Bnei Israel go. And now Bnei Israel couldn't truly have a choice to accept the Torah. It's There's something in this balance imbalance that I find a little bit 
concerning, right? Like, yeah, well, I think that's God's role in the world is to remove choice from us. Now, I understand that not all of them, you know, not all the philosophers think that we have free choice at all. Right. Right. Meaning we all we relate to the world as if we have free choice, which sometimes has to just be good enough. Right. Like it's not one of the pillars of faith of of the of Ah, of Maimonides, of the Rambam, right? It's the idea that we have Bechir HaChafshit is complicated. And, and not, you know, I would say that even given modern cognition and everything, everything we know about the brain today and the way hormones dictate our emotions and so on, I'm not even so sure that we do have free choice in the way that we mean it when we say it. But we certainly have the semblance of it. And, you know, to have that removed, I don't know, like... It doesn't sit well. That's it doesn't feel like this. Of, uh... But that's the challenge of following the Torah is that I, I think that's exactly the tension. That in other words, here we get taken out of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The whole theme of the Seder is, you know, that, you know, Avadim Hayinu, we were slaves, and now we're free. And yet what was the freedom for was to basically have to run our lives by this very detailed book that has many laws and really sort of regulates all aspects of our lives. And look, I think one way to look at it is, is that giving yourself over to some order actually does give you more freedom, right? Isn't that sort of where we end up landing on that? Um, yeah. But that, and, I, and I buy and it. I, I, I buy that buy because we know so much about, we know so much about the tyranny of choice, right? right? The paradox of having too much choice and then you're frozen and you can't right. make any So I always remember, decisions. and I, you know, is I remember reading, you know, when we were like in six, you know, remember when we were like young teenagers was, you know, when the uh, whole Refusenik movement was very big and people were going to protests and, you know, to save Soviet Jewry. And I remember I read in an article once about an, ex- an experience of uh, an immigrant who came to America and went to the grocery store and just found it to be overwhelming. It was too much choice. You know, going from where you had to wait hey, online, I'm... you know, and, and, <laughs> and so and I'll say it the other way is I like Lahavdil, but I sort of experienced it after we lived in Israel, which, you know, God willing, we should get back to. But um, and um, I remember when we came to America, we had to furnish our apartment and I was like overwhelmed by the shopping. Like there were just by choice, many, like right? we just drove up Route 4 in New Jersey and there was like furniture store after furniture store after furniture store. And you're like, well, I can't even figure out like what store to go into. So, you know, I think. So Lahav deal. I had the same when I came back from Shana Aleph. Now I came back from Shana Aleph, my year of learning between high school and college a long time ago. And Israel was not as um, material rich as it is now. Right. Uh, leaving aside the current coronavirus business, whatever. But like meaning now you walk into an Israeli supermarket and there's plenty of choice. But. Then it was like you went into the Makolid and if you went to a supermarket and maybe they had milk in a carton and that was a big deal. And I remember coming home and my mom sent me to the store and I felt like I walked through the aisles and first of all, there was just so much plenty. But also there was like, I don't know why this struck me, but it stayed with me. Diet, cherry, seven up. I was like, what do you need? Diet, cherry, seven up. Like, who cares? Right? It doesn't matter. Except for that it seemed like, what, another one? Another new flavor? Come on. Right. Because Israel had just been a little bit simpler. And also, you know, I didn't I didn't care about the actual beverage. It wasn't exciting to me to find it. It just seemed like, oh, my goodness, so much choice. But they've done I mean, they've done a myriad of studies of how people literally are paralyzed when they have too many. You know, you give them to people too much choice in the supermarket. Some of those big supermarkets in America can be very overwhelming. And then people walk out with nothing. And that's defeatist. 
I mean, that defeats the purpose of the of the marketers. Right. Right. So, so I, I so I think that's the tension here is that, you know, there's the, the element of coercion because you saw God's presence. So what choice do you have if God's really revealed to you? And, you know, like this, they heard God's voice. I mean, that's what it says that, you know, they heard God's voice and got scared. Um, so I think that's one piece of it. And then I think the other piece is, yes, the tension of here you are enslaved, but are you just being brought to have to follow another system? Um, but again, I think you and I both subscribe to like, do we love, you know, do we love everything? Are there certain Jewish pieces of Jewish law or things that are sometimes hard? Sure. But I think I overall feel have always felt it's a particular lifestyle that gives me a lot of structure and but, but structure that ultimately leads to freedom. Um, so but would you want to hear God? Meaning, right? Like, shouldn't we want that? How many people say, I don't oh, know. Only I, I'm not I sure heard that I, from I'm God not directly. Sure that I would definitely want that experience. I, you know, I, I think we, we talked about that in the Gemara about, you know, what is it going to be like in the days of Mashiach, right? And Abayi says, it's just that we're not going to be oppressed, you know, by foreign nations, but it's not really going to be any right. different. And I think, yeah, I actually think that's the only way humans can handle it. I'm not sure most humans actually want to encounter God in that way. I think it's an, and, and you see that even without Nevi'im, like there's always a thing of like, you know, that they didn't have choice, that God assigned it to them, you know, in their mother's womb. Like, I think the Nevi'im themselves really struggle with that. It's not choice to be a Navi. It's not choice to hear God's voice and may not always be, uh, like you said, Anne, it's not necessarily getting a hug from God. You know, it, it may not feel good always. Right, but. <laughs> Right. And then, and that's, that's really disconcerting, right? Like we want everything to be, you know, comfy and cushy and, and, you know, support life affirming, right? And life I feel like affirming is different. Sometimes it's life not. affirming is different than, than cushy. I don't, I don't think that's what life yeah. is supposed to be. I don't think life is meant to be always pleasant. I just don't. We want it to be, but it's not, I, I it's agree. not really. What I agree with you, but. <laughs> I, I agree. I'll we'll let it yeah, go. Let it go I, I think that sometimes those the punishments, the, yeah. the punishments are a little bit yeah. daunting. Okay. So then the Gemara continues and says, <laughs> Right. So that from here of Acha Bar Yaakov says, there's really sort of like a caveat. That's how Sfaria translates it to the obligation to fulfill Torah, because in other words, the Jewish people can really claim they were co- coerced into it. So, you know, you could sort of say Nasa Vinishma with a, with an asterisk. But then Rava comes in and gives a very interesting interpretation. Amar Rava, Rava, I'm sorry, Amar So Rava says, even though all of this is true, that in the days of Achashverosh, that generation, they actually accepted the Torah freely. Right? There's a pasuk in Megillat Esther, pasuk Tet, pasuk Zion, chapter nine, verse twenty-seven. Right? That says that they. They kimu, they uh, established and took upon themselves. Right there, it's talking about the some of the specific laws around um, uh, around Purim. But Rava takes it to mean a broader kimu v'kibu of the Torah, mashikibu uh, kavar. Right, that they basically took upon themselves. Right, kimu mashikibu kavar. They took upon themselves. They reestablished for themselves what they had already accepted. And to get back to my point about you know, the idea of miracles, what's fascinating to me is he's taking a pasuk from Megillah Esther, which is the only book 
that Hashem's name never appears in, right? It's supposed to be sort of the ultimate, right? That's literally what Esther's name comes from, of Hester Panim, that God is hidden in that whole book. And yet that's the generation that can do Kimu Vukibu, that of their own free will, when God's presence is hidden from them, that's when they're able to freely say, now we accept the Torah and everything that's in it. Um, so I think Rava's, Rava tries to solve this uh, by also, you know, by saying this as well. I also think it's interesting that that sort of Kimu Vikibu takes place, you know, he's saying this sort of in Bavel, you know, in a diaspora community. And I always felt that also there's, it's kind of an understanding as well that like, when we're in the diaspora, we're not living in an our ideal homeland or as the Torah was meant to be observed, there's also a Kimu Vikibu that happens with that when we continue with the Torah and continue to say that this is how we're going to live our lives. So I'm going to jump from that to a, a small piece of Gemara on Amabet, right here we on Pechet Amabet, where this question of the diaspora, right, I think must have bothered Chazal as well, because they speak about the languages, right? Sorry, Hamvas wrote Savat Rav. Right, this idea that there's a pasuk in, in Tehillim that says Hashem gives um, the word and then the women proclaim the tidings are a great host, right? That's just the translation of the verse um, from Tehillim 68, Mizmor 68, verse 12. Okay. And the and the Gemara Darshans, and it says, and this happens often with with Pesukim from Tehillim or Mishle or, or Kohelet, right? Other other literature that is not exactly narrative. It says each and every utterance that was that came from Hashem, divided into 70 languages. Right? It somehow kind of smashed into 70 languages. And that's the next verse, Tanadvay Right? That it's like a from a hammer, um, it's shattered on a rock. The same way that you'll get sparks when you, when you, I don't know, hammer a rock, right? So too, every statement from Hashem came forth and kind of shattered into 70 languages. Now, I find this to be very interesting. I think that it's about the, I, I think that the implication is that the Torah is supposed to be accessible, right? And then, and then the Gemara goes on to say, that, that these statements of the Torah, right, they end up being likened to a king. And just as the king can, you know, has the right to kill or to grant life, so too the Torah has the right to kill and grant life. And, and not the right, but th- that it will. And the Gemara goes on to, to delve into that as well, right? That if that the, that the words of the Torah are either going to be, I don't know if life-affirming is exactly the way the Gemara meant it, but that they bring life or under the adverse circumstances will, you know, bring death. Whatever that means, I'm going to assume even that it's figurative and not literal. But again, I feel like there's this implication that the Torah needs to be accessible, that everybody can find life in it. And if you don't, well, then too bad for you. Right? That is, it's not sympathetic if you're not going to sign on. Right. I, 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 my take on the 70 languages is a little different, which is, I think what it recognizes is, is that every Torah, Torah will always be understood because language is not just about language. It's about culture, right? Language comes with a particular culture around that language. And we've seen that in the Dapim here, you know, like when the Amorayim and Bavel have to understand, you know, terminology that's used in a Mishnah written in Hebrew. 
Um, so to me, it's also saying that it's sort of like, you know, Torah can always be understood in any culture. It's relevant wherever it is. And I think that's also the diaspora piece speaking there. Yes, I, I think, I don't think that we're contradicting each other. No, no, there. no. I think we're just saying two different things about the same thing. <laughs> Okay. It's a it's a rich it's a rich stuff and there's a lot to talk about here. There is indeed. All right. So thank you for joining us. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Come join us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about Matan Torah and what it means to live a life of Torah. Thank you to Rabbinit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>